Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's backbone. Welcome to a very special episode, number 88. My guest is Ed Dixon. Ed Dixon spent very little time in the ensemble, but his life on stage and off is something I thought worth sharing. Actually, his memoir called Secrets of a Life on Stage and Off is one of the reasons I reached out to Mr. Dixon. Ed Dixon has appeared in numerous Broadway shows, including No No Nanette, The Three Musketeers, Les Miserables, he's the second longest-running Tenardier, Cyrano, The Scarlet Pimpernel, The Iceman Cometh, The Best Man, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Sunday in the Park with George, Mary Poppins, and was nominated for a Drama Desk Award for his production of Shylock. He was also in the revival of Anything Goes. Dixon was also a soloist in the Kennedy Center's premiere production of Leonard Bernstein's Mass. He is also heard on the cast recording of the 2001 national tour of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. He also won the 2010 Helen Hayes Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Musical for his turn as Max in Sunset Boulevard. An accomplished author and composer, he wrote Fanny Hill and his musical Georgie. Please welcome Ed Dixon. Hello, Ed. How are you? I'm really good today. Thank you. Well, that's good to hear. Yes, it is. (laughs) Turns out uh, I have a lot of friends who know you because I posted about our interview today and everybody was hopping on saying, oh, he's great. Oh, I love him. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, that is good to hear. That is good, yes. How are you keeping motivated, stuck inside right now? Well, you know... I don't have any problem at all sitting in the house all day. I'm either writing or composing or whatever. So basically, now it's pretty much like it was before, except I I don't have my private students now. Normally, I have students every day. Yeah, so you're still teaching full-time. That's amazing. I wouldn't call it full-time, but I have somebody virtually every day. You're just homebound right now as well, right? I am. I usually go to the park every day and see the birds and the squirrels if it's nice enough. Of course, it's raining all day today, so I'll totally be in the house all day today. I completely agree with that. I mean, I haven't been going outside too much. Occasionally, I had random appointments in grocery store, of course, but trying to keep For inside. For me, it's just the grocery store or the corner deli. That's as far as I ever go. So I am so excited that you agreed to do this interview. Uh, so many people have said I should reach out to you, and now I know exactly why. <laughs> So we could get started if you would like. Oh yeah, I'm ready. All right. This is Ed Dixon, ladies and gentlemen. We were chatting. Uh, Hello. It's the middle of, we're stuck in the quarantine. I finally got to get you on the phone because I'm so excited about this. So uh, where are you from and how'd you get started? Well, I was born in Oklahoma. My father was an itinerant minister, preacher, and we used to do tent meetings all over the state. and. At one point, we actually did tent meetings that went all the way from Oklahoma to Canada and back, setting up tents and me reading the singing. And it was pretty unimaginably horrible. But sometime around junior high, I discovered musicals, and I decided that I was going to escape Oklahoma and run away to the land of show business. And curiously, my high school course student teacher was Scotty Salmon who became a very famous choreographer. He did the Grammys and the Oscars and choreographed and Margaret Act and choreographed the original La Caja Soul on Broadway. Oh, wow. So he, he told me that there was such a thing as Summerstock, and I just couldn't believe my ears that there was a place in the 1960s where you could go and do one musical after another all summer along, and they would pay you. Because of him, I drove down to Casamaniana in Wow, and that's like, Summerstock now isn't as great as it is then. I mean, I refer to stuff as Summerstock that I do, and basically it ends up just being like a regional theater contract. There's no such thing as that. My very first job before CASA, I got a non-union job at, at Surflight Summer Theater in Long Beach Island, New Jersey. We did 10 shows in 11 weeks, and I starred in five of them and was in the chorus of the other five. My second job was to do eight musicals at Casa Manana 
And my third job was to do eight more musicals at Costa Manana. So in my teens, with three jobs behind me, I'd already done almost 30 musicals. There's just no such thing as that anymore. Oh, not at all. I mean, we would do five no. where I grew up, and we thought that was a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that surflight job where we did 10 shows in 11 weeks, we were always rehearsing a chorus job and learning a principal role. Plus, we did improvisational children's theater in the morning, completely improvised. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's incredible. I would incredible. die if I tried that schedule today. Oh yeah. Wait, so what exactly is a, a tent show? When you were talking about with your parents, you would set up a tent show? Oh, revival meetings in tents, you know. Wow. services in tents. We would pitch a tent on a cow pasture and then dunk parishioners in the cow tanks for baptism afterwards. <laughs> It was very glamorous. Wow, I mean, that's seriously like something you see in, in old movies. I, the fact that it's you were... something you would see in an old movie, yes. So you left that type of show for a completely different type of show. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. It never occurred to me that what my father was doing was kind of vaudeville. But <laughs> <laughs> he just wasn't very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so after your several years of doing Ecasa, what led you to New York City? It's an almost unbelievable show business story. In between my two contracts at Casa Manana, I came to New York and did a couple of shows out of New York in the provinces, but I had run out of money and I had basically given up and I was at Casa Manana on my way to California to try to try California. And I was rehearsing a show at Casa Manana with Betty Buckley and the, the phone rang in the phone booth, wooden phone booth in the corner and Betty says, it's for you, Ed. And I go and, and this musical director who was very powerful at the time in New York had heard me when I was in New York and he offered me no, 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 over the phone in a phone booth in Texas. And I got in a Volkswagen van and drove back across the country to New York and started my life over in New York. That is amazing. Truly, and in those days, powerful musical directors could cast the ensemble without the approval of the director. This guy just offered me a job over the phone. That is amazing. They don't do that anymore. There aren't any payphones anymore. No, first of all, oh, that was the other thing. I didn't have a phone number anymore. And Buster Davis, this musical director, called the union, and the union said, we don't have a number for him, but he's rehearsing a contract that we have here in Texas. Call him there. And he did. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So what type of training did you have leading up to Costa? Because I know I read in your amazing book that your first audition was pretty bad for them. Yes. I, I was so terrified. I was shaking like a leaf and I couldn't control my body. But I was a teenager. I was still in high school at the time. I studied with a private teacher in Oklahoma and then I got with Elizabeth Parham who was a truly great teacher and uh, I got a scholarship, a full scholarship to the Manhattan School of Music and I came to New York for a year but at that point I really realized I wasn't getting anything out of school that I really needed to start working and that's what I did and it was a decision that I never regretted. Well, that is definitely a good decision. So you drove across country in a VW bus to get to your Broadway yes. debut. Yes, it's just, I mean, everything about it sounds made up, which is how so much of my life sounds. I mean, every chapter of my life sounds like a, a David Sedaris short story. It's just, really? Can that happen? Well, yes, well, it does, actually. Your book is so fascinating. It, it actually, I had it for several years before I actually read it. Because several people was like, you need to read this, you need to read this. And then once I started it, I couldn't put it down. Because it definitely is David Sedaris. And we'll get to later why I connected to it so much. So let's talk about yes. No No Nanette. Oh, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, I, I was like 20 and I didn't know anything. I'd done summer stuff. That was it. And suddenly I'm in a Broadway show that I got in such a random way with all these big Hollywood stars. And it was the most amazing production. But the interesting thing was behind the scenes, it was a snake pit. 
people were being fired every day, and the management was very cruel and unkind to people. And they, like when we were doing the out-of-town trials, the company manager walked up to the guy standing next to me in the line and said, you can get out of the line, you won't be going to the next city. <gasps> it was cruel like that. One day they fired 12 girls all at the same time, just to, we don't like you, get out. And there was no just cause cause in those days, so if they wanted to fire you, they just fired you. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but there was Busby Berkeley, who created the overhead shop in the movie, and I mean, who has worked with Busby Berkeley? Yeah. <laughs> and Ruby Keeler and Patsy Kelly. I mean, it was, when you're young, you just take everything in stride. You think this is normal. Of course, it's not normal at all. Not normal at all. It was so terrifying. I had a sign on my dressing room mirror that, that said K-Y-M-S. And people would ask me what it meant, and I wouldn't tell them. It meant keep your mouth shut. It was such a snake pit in there that you could be fired for anything. So it was just terrifying. And so it was an amazing way to begin show business, to be in a, a great big hit, the first thing out of the bag. And the amazing thing is that while I was in that show, I got cast in Leonard Bernstein's Mass. Now, I was in the chorus of a Broadway show. What were the chances that I was going to be hired to be a soloist in Leonard Bernstein's mask commissioned for the opening of the John F. Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. It was just so impossible. And suddenly, I'm going from one thing to another, and I'm in my early 20s, and now I'm working with Leonard Bernstein and Alvin Ailey, and it was just completely extraordinary. Oh, wow, yeah, because you mentioned that it was one of your favorite experiences and a magical experience. Can you imagine being with Leonard Bernstein and all of the Kennedys that were living were attending the premiere and the whole world covering the premiere that's opening the John F. Kennedy Center and then taking it to the Metropolitan Opera. I mean, the kind of thing that it's so large that your little 20-year-old brain can't process it. Yet there's a part of you that thinks, oh, this is what life is going to be like now. I said, of course, nothing is ever like that. No, and they almost didn't let you out of your Nanette contract. Is that right? Oh, my gosh. That was the most unbelievable thing. You know, I had a very bad relationship with this particular stage manager. I didn't care for her. And she took great delight in shoving my notice back in my hand and saying that she wasn't going to let me out of the contract. <sighs> and it was only only because the union upheld it that, that you couldn't hold a chorus person back from a, from a major principal job. It was the most extraordinary moment. That is amazing. And you were, I mean, and Nanette was at that point a huge hit. Yes, it was. With Ruby Keeler as, a, as the star, and you actually didn't think it was going to be a hit when you were out of town. Well, well I mean, nobody had ever revived an old musical before. Oh, and, and, you know, Pippin was a big hit. Jesus Christ Superstar was a big hit. And there we were rehearsing T for two and two. We just thought it, well, this was ridiculous. And the idea of doing an old show from the 1920s, you can't imagine how radical it was at that moment. Now revivals are de rigueur. It's just part of the landscape. And so you just left and got to do Bernstein's Mass, and your solo in that was a big deal for you. Yeah, well, of course it was. It, you know, doing <laughs> at the Met, I mean, good God. <laughs> And doing it with Bernstein, I actually got to work with Bernstein three times. I also did an off-Broadway review called By Bernstein, which was another extraordinary experience because the book was by Comden and Green, and they were there every day, and so was Bernstein. Oh, wow. And then I did the first annual Bernstein Festival, so for a whole string of events in my early 20s, I was with Leonard Bernstein all the time. It was such an extraordinary time. And of course, being around Comden and Green, I also did a bunch of gigs that involved Condon and Green and Cy Coleman because we did a lot together in the old days. And it's the kind of thing that you're in a room with these giants and it seems normal to you because that's just your life. So did you have any idea how big of a deal it was at that time or you just were in the room doing your job? No, honestly, no. I mean, and you know when you're young, you're so busy trying to get to the next 
thing that you can't really appreciate the thing you're doing for what it is. I was always just looking to get something bigger, something better, something grander. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's how we do. It's hard to learn to be in the moment and in the present. Yes, and people were so shocked when I left No No Nanette. They said, who would leave a big hit? Well, I didn't want to be in the chorus. <laughs> I, I was on my way somewhere. <laughs> The thing that's so impressive about you is that you have so many talents and you reinvent yourself. So here you have a great career in musical theater and you also went from there to have a great career in opera and from the Santa Fe Opera and then you went to Germany to do opera. How did opera come into your life? Well, very early in my life, the recordings, I think the first recording I bought was West Side Story, the Bernstein. How could I have possibly known in a small town in Oklahoma that I would eventually work with both Bernstein and Sondheim? Oh. And that was the very first album I bought. But the second album I bought was The Merry Widow. I was very interested in operetta and very interested in opera. And unfortunately, I got to try everything. I just am so fortunate in that way. And did you have to learn German? Uh, yes. I mean, I've studied so many languages in my life. And in terms of grades, I never did well in my languages. But I was able to pick up enough of several languages that I was able to travel in that country. My version of pigeon, whatever that country was. I mean, I knew enough German. I got a job at a German opera company and was put into an opera that I'd never sung before in German by a German stage manager who spoke not a word of English. So I had enough German to do that and to go around doing auditions. And let me tell you, when you're on stage in an opera house and somebody is shouting questions at you from the back of the auditorium in a foreign language, <laughs> it's very challenging. Oh, it's challenging when people are shouting at you in English. <laughs> yes. At one point, I can't remember what city I was in, but normally people said, see hi, TV, when they wanted to know your name. But this guy yells out, Irinamangita. And so I said, Bitter? And he said, Irinamangita. And finally, the, the accompanist from the pit says, Your name. It's <laughs> 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 very hard to recover from a moment like that. <laughs> Yes. One thing that's amazing about you is you always seem to find the right song for certain auditions, but you just don't find the right song. You write the song yourself. That just seems crazy that you write a song. Well, you know, I, when I got that scholarship to the Manhattan School of Music, I entered a group of songs that I had written myself. And people said to me, oh my gosh, you'll be disqualified. You can't enter songs that you wrote yourself in the math music competition. And I said, well, I'm going to. And that was the reason that I won the scholarship to the Manhattan School of Music. So the, the way this came to be, I was auditioning for the great Tom O'Horrigan for the Three Musketeers on Broadway. And I was auditioning for Cardinal Richelieu. And Cardinal Richelieu, of course, is a very evil character historically. It's very hard to find a properly evil song for such a character. So after my original audition, they said, come back, but when you come back, come back with something evil, will you? And so I went home, I went, well, what the hell is evil? So I wrote a song called, A Villain's Work Is Never Done. And it covered two and a half octaves. It had a high C and a low G in it. And when I finished it, somebody on the panel asked me if I would vocalize for them. I had just sung two and a half octaves. I said, you know, it's funny. Whenever anybody asks me to vocalize at an audition, I feel like I'm having my pants pulled down. And there was a silence. And then I said, not that I mind. And then they started laughing. And I thought, okay, I may have pulled this off. Very nice. I mean, you did. You got cast in that show. And that yes, role. I did. Yes, I did. And that was my first big character part on Broadway. So it was an amazing turning point for me. Because I know you mentioned Three Musketeers was not well received. It was considered a flop. The Daily News gave it a full-out rave. And the headline said, All hail the Three Musketeers. But the Times was a fan. And because the Times panned it, the producers just pulled the plug. 
Just that fast. It, it had direction and choreography by Joe Layton and costumes by the simply amazing Freddie Whitop, who'd been in retirement for a number of years. The costumes were out of this world. And it was just such a thrill to be in this amazing costume epic playing this villain on Broadway. It was an amazing moment in my life. You said it was one of your favorite experiences. Yeah, it was really. It's so wonderful. Because I've done a number of flops, Flop can have a kind of resonance for you that's different from a hit because you have such fond memories of it and it lasts such a short period of time, you never have time to tire of it. So it always remains this kind of pristine, shiny object in your rearview mirror. I actually can never put into words why I appreciate my flop so much and that's a great analogy. I like that. Well, you know, you get a poster, you put it on your wall and it's enshrined forever. <laughs> yeah, very true. So I love that you and your career, you're not complacent at all. You actually like make things happen for you and you create stuff for yourself. I, I've been proactive for a very long time. I mean, it was while I was in the Three Musketeers, at one point we had the fight director from the Royal Shakespeare Company. And he pulled me aside in the wings one day and said, you know, you should play Shylock. And I started reading Shylock as a result of that, The Merchant of Venice, as a result of that, and I identified with him so strongly and I thought I've got nothing but musicals on my resume who's ever going to hire me for this so I wrote it into an opera and got it produced at the York Theatre and got a drop of test nomination for it and that's another one of those things that you look back on it and you go well that can't possibly have happened nobody writes an operatic version of a Shakespeare classic and stars themselves in it in New York <laughs> it's just it seems like you had an incredible amount of confidence, which I think is so in inspiring. Where did this confidence come from? Were you even aware of it at the time? Well, you know, when you start off like I did in such a sort of poor white trash trailer park kind of way, you've got such a chip on your shoulder and such a desire to prove yourself. I never even noticed it. I just thought it was normal to try to spit in the face of a hurricane. The early years were so terrible, and I had such a strong conviction that I had to succeed in show business. When I first moved to New York, I was in a five-story walk-up at the back of a dingy building that looked like a prison, and it was $68 a month, and I split the rent with a French horn player, so I had to come up to $34 to stay afloat. And that building is still there, and recently I went and stood in front of it, and I looked up to the fifth floor, and I went, I moved here with $100, and I said, I am going to be in show business. And I just stood there, and yeah, it was just so unbelievable, the whole thing. If you don't mind me asking, what was so bad about Oklahoma that you just needed to get out? Was it growing well, up gay? Oklahoma, or? even today, is the most backwards, Republican, backwards, small-minded, vile. It's one of the vilest states in the Union, and there's a bunch of vile states in this Union. Yes, and uh, if you're gay and your father is a revival minister, there are no words for what that was like in the 1950s. There are literally no words. Yeah. The world has opened so much in these 70 years that it is unimaginable to think what it would be like to be a child in that time in that situation. Yeah, I can't imagine. Did you know you were gay at a very early age? <laughs> I think when I was about six, somebody asked me who I was going to marry, and I said, Jimmy DeLong, down the street. And they said, you can't marry a boy. And I said, why not? <laughs> it's so hilarious to me that I actually remember that story. Wow, so you had confidence even when you were six years old. That's... <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> very funny. It's very, because, I mean, if you'd asked me, I thought I was a kind of a squashed cabbage leaf. That was not my behavior. No, not at all. Wow. Yeah. I mentioned earlier, I was recommended this book by three people, and one of the things they said was, you relate to it so much. And once I finally read it, I realized why. I uh, recently just celebrated 14 years 
sober and a lot of your book is about not only your recovery but about your bottom you're very honest about hitting your emotional and your alcoholic and drug bottom it was nice to see it within the case of someone doing musical theater so when did you think you started noticing that you had a problem it was sometime around 1988 or 89 i knew things were out of control. If I were to restate my history, up until that point, I'd always been a bit of a party boy. It was my reaction to my very strict upbringing. I thought I was so clever to be able to skate so far out over the edge. And it wasn't until everything came crashing down that I thought, you know, I'm going to have to rethink all of this. But it's not so easy to turn the ship around once you're that far out to sea. And it went on for about three years, and I don't think anybody thought I was coming back, including myself. And to watch not only how I did come back, but how quickly my career came back. I just assumed everyone would hold it over me, and no one would forgive me, and quite the opposite. But once I showed that I had turned myself around, people wanted to step up and be helpful to me, which was a great shock. Yes, I mean, because that was one thing is how were you able to regain people's trust? I will honestly never understand it. I mean, this is about the fourth time I've said to you in this interview, it was beyond what you could make up. You know, I kept finding myself in situations that were beyond fiction. And this whole chapter was beyond fiction. And then the coming back was also beyond fiction. I mean, I hadn't been sober for a year when I got cast in Cyrano the Musical on Broadway, which was a gigantic production. But at that point, I really knew that I had put myself back on the road. Well, in your book, Life in the Theater, On Stage and Off, yes. which everyone needs to read it, you should definitely put it on Audible. Secrets of a Life on Stage and Off. Yeah, Secrets yes. of a Life on Stage and Off. It's brilliant. So I don't want to give too much away, but you basically lost your home. Uh, no, no, basically, I lost my home, all of my memorabilia, all of my writings, all of my music, all of my mementos of my career. This would have been about 1990. And in January of 91, I went into treatment and that was the beginning of turning things around. Yes. And you were sleeping I, in a I, dressing room, weren't you? Yes. I was homeless. I had lost everything. I had no one to turn to, no money, no hope. What were the chances that I was going to turn that around? I mean, it's just almost unimaginable. Yes. At one point you said you showed one of the drug dealers your picture on the side of a theater. <laughs> To, yes. pro- to prove that you actually had a job. And I did the impossible. I got credit from a drug dealer. I mean, that's a book in itself right there. And all this was happening while you were playing Tenardier in Les Mis. That is correct. Who is, of course, a drunk and a drug addict and a child abuser. If I'd been playing anything else, I wouldn't have been able to continue. That's amazing. And Les Mis company, they were supportive of you to get sober. They helped you yes. hit your bottom. But you can't imagine how different the world was in the 1980s than it is now. I mean, there were so many people in the Broadway community who were alcohol and drug addicted at that point. And I'm talking very seriously drug addicted. It was in virtually every show at that point. Today, there's a zero tolerance policy. But back then, so many of the stage managers, so many of the producers, so many of the writers, so many of the performers were drug addicted, and it was part of the fabric. It's as radical as the changes that have happened in the sexual landscape, things that were considered normal in the 1970s and 80s that you couldn't get away with for one second today. I heard stories about, like, chorus line people doing lines of coke off stage. I saw a chorus line character so stoned on heroin that she could hardly stand. I mean, and it was so obvious from the audience that that's what it was. It, that, that, that's just hard to imagine that in this period of time, things have changed that much. Yes. And this is funny. A friend of mine who was a very well-known Broadway star in the 80s recently posted about all the cocaine that he'd done in that period. And I, he seemed such a straight shooter to me. I thought, oh my God, I can't believe you too. I just can't believe it. I think even though they have a no tolerance now, 
it's still a very much an alcohol. I mean, yeah, oh yes. The, yeah. I think it's the hours. I don't know what it is, but there's just there is a lot of partying, as they say, within the musical theater world. I don't think anybody sets out to be famous unless they're working out some sort of early childhood trauma. A person who's just happy and well-adjusted is not going to do all of the things that are required to have a theater career. There's something driving it, and I believe that makes it much easier for people to get on the wrong foot. I know, I definitely think that that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because you and your recovery is, is such an inspiration to me. I definitely wanted to share that with, with my listeners because uh, it's it's amazing to see how far down you went and then how high you've gone since then. I mean, it's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. I was about 40 when I got into all this trouble. And I think a lot of people think by the time you're 40, you've passed the danger zone. That, of course, is not true. And the bulk of my career has been after my recovery, all the really important things in my career happened after my recovery. I was in my 60s by the time I decided to write this book, and I thought, what the hell do I care? I'm an old man. I can say whatever I like, and this may be helpful to people. My GP, my doctor, bought a bunch of copies of the book and kept it in his lobby for reading material, and he said, I've had a dozen people tell me that they got sober after reading your book. That's just, I can't tell you how that thrilled me. That is amazing. Yeah. Oh, that, I mean, that is so so great to hear. It's definitely books like yours I, I like to read because it keeps me sober and it keeps reminding me that this disease of alcoholism or whatever ism it is, it, it doesn't go away when you have time. It sits there and waits for you. And the thing I can, I can tell you from my point of view is I have no idea how I got sober. I did all the things. I did AA, I did therapy, I did group, I did journaling, I did all the things. What it was allowed me to be released from that particular prison. I'll never be able to tell you what it was that did it or how I did it. So I have no idea how I would ever do it again should I get into trouble again because I'll never know how I actually got out. It's grace. It's a, it's a miracle. No, it definitely is. And I know like right now um, I have three sponsees that are all really struggling with this quarantine because they have, they're isolating, they have time on their hands. Do you feel triggered at all being in quarantine or you're riding in your birds? No, I don't. I I tell you, my release has been so all-encompassing that, you know, I have friends who still feel that they have to go to meetings every day. I am not in that condition. Something that had a hold of me and I could not make it release me. And when it released me, I was free of it. No addict can ever truly be free because it's your history. It's, it, it's in you, it's your past. But I am not at any point ever triggered or do I ever have desire to go down any of those roads again. First of all, I'm old now, so I know that my physical being would not allow any such thing, and there's nothing in any way appealing or enticing about any of this. That is so great. You know, I mean, I, sometimes I'm strong, but lately, cause I just want to shut off and escape, especially, like, you watch the news, and I the first thing I'm like, oh. oh. no, no, I don't have that. I'll tell you what I do have is rage. You know how alcoholism can transform itself into another mode of expression, and for me, it's rage. Like, I see the way our country is going, and I see the way our politicians are behaving, and I'm so filled with rage that I can hardly continue. And that is almost as poisonous as a drug, you know? Yes, it's true. And then do you put your rage into music, or what do you do with it? I'll tell you, the most amazing thing in my later years has been my ability to go to the park. I go to the park every day, and I feed the birds, and I feed the squirrels. And I can't describe to you how important it is. It's as important as anything I've ever done. It's as beautiful as anything I've ever done. And it's what I turn to. It's what I try to do every day. Oh, it's like what they talk about, like a, a walking meditation. It's something yes, that you're... Yes, I, yes. I like that. So you were offered Sunset Boulevard, which is a big thing in your life. And you actually turned it down when you first got it. That's... <laughs> it's 
not that I turned it down. I was doing a show at good speed, and it was just about to open. And they called and asked me if I could replace George Hearn for a stint while he was off to do a movie. But they needed me to come right then. And Goodspeed had an absolute zero cancellation policy. So I just stood there on the phone, once again, a payphone, and, and saying, I, I can't believe this is happening. I'm being offered the most important thing that's ever been offered to me, and I can't go. I would have been thrown into it at the same time Betty Buckley was going into it. I would have been one of the two principals replacing at the same time. I wouldn't have had a full rehearsal process, and I would just be thrown into this, this extremely challenging show. As it turned out, I got to begin the first national, so we had a wonderful rehearsal period, and I got to fully encompass what I wanted to be able to accomplish in the role. That's great. I saw pictures of you in your book, and you so look like Max. It's it's wonderful. Was that? I just saw the show recently, and that role is much more the heartbeat of the show than I remember. It is. It was such an overwhelming experience to stand on that amazing set. It was the most amazing set I've ever seen. Certainly, the most amazing set I've ever stood on. And to be on it when it was flying, it was one of the most extraordinary things I will ever experience. And the part was so emotionally deep that one day after I'd been doing it for about six months, I stood in that window in the doorway and watched Norma pull Joe down on top of her. And I had to step back out of the doorway and close the curtain because it was so painful. And when I closed the curtain, I just began sobbing uncontrollably, and I couldn't stop. And I realized I'd been living in that unbelievably tense mind of his for six months. Plus, I was going to play opposite my dear friend, Linda Balgord, who is just one of my favorite people, and that was so marvelous. One thing I love is that you talk about crying quite a bit in your book, and it, but you refer, <laughs> you refer to it as a gratitude cry. And I love the gratitude cry, and you actually make fun of yourself in the book, but I think that's something beautiful that you have that ability to cry about something that you like. Yes, yes. I mean, I was a great, great fan of Birgit Nielsen, the Wagnerian soprano. I started writing to her when I was in my 20s, I have a dozen letters from her, and we communicated all through her life until her death. And when she died, I've never cried like that in my life. But every time I ever saw her in the theater, I would weep uncontrollably. There was just something about the art that she was offering up to the public that went through me like an arrow. Oh, yes, I, I love that. I feel like I've been crying a lot lately. <laughs> yes, oh. yes. And being able to tap into that type of emotion is scary, but it's also healing. Well, what I find as I get older is that it's closer and closer to the surface. Young me was so guarded, none of that was happening. But at this point, when you've lived as much life as I have lived and seen as much suffering as I have, it is all that is just below the surface and all the the joy too yes and I also think when we get sober we realize how precious so many things are and we we don't take things for granted as much as we used to yes because we realize how close we came to losing our lives and the interesting thing about this plague thing is that it makes me see everyone with such new eyes I mean I I go to my little corner deli and these people who've been serving me every day for 20 years, I see how fragile their lives are and how they're standing there serving people all day long and putting their lives in danger. It's just it's overwhelming. I completely agree. I'm so grateful for so many people in my life that I didn't realize how important they actually were. Yes. Yes. You actually expanded your life even more so when it comes to this business. You crossed the big barrier of musical theater and went into doing straight plays, as they say, with The Best Man and Iceman Cometh and The Persians. I mean, that's a leap not many musical theater actors can make. How did you do it? You know, everything is a kind of a divine accident. I, I was working with Ethan McSweeney early on on a musical, and Ethan McSweeney when he was in a wunderkind and was a very young director on Broadway, had a good experience with me in a musical reading, and he just offered me this straight play on Broadway. When Iceman Cometh came along, 
there was a well-known casting director who had just seen me in a musical, and, and he said to my agent, this guy deserves more. This guy deserves more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to help him. And he got me an audition for Iceman and coached me for the video that we sent to the director, and I got it without even needing the director. Then the Persians was also Ethan McSweeney again. I suppose one of the rare things that I actually did get in the normal way, the famous avant-garde director, Mary Zimmerman. I auditioned for her cold. She had no idea who I was for her deconstructionist version of Midsummer Night's Dream to play bottom. And I had a lot of confidence at that moment. And out of nowhere, she cast me as bottom in her deconstructionist Midsummer. And I got an extraordinary Shakespeare experience out of that. I've just been lucky to be able to move from one medium to another. And But you also go into the medium of writer and composer. I mean, is, is there anything you can't do? I did a reading in the 1970s, and it was so terrible. <laughs> there were some well-known people in it, and this material was so terrible that while I was doing this reading, I thought, not only can I do better than this, anyone could do better than this. And it was as a result of that terrible reading that I really got serious about writing. I wrote a piece called Identity and Other Crises and got it produced off-Broadway in the exact venue that I had targeted. Another one of those just unbelievable things because I, I had no credentials at the time. So I'll never fully understand how I got that done. Well, I mean, you set your intentions and your goals and you followed through. I know yep. it's the follow-through that I, I find not only in myself but in, in colleagues that we talk about our goals and our intentions. We don't follow through with them. Well, if you don't write your musical, you're certainly not going to get it produced. But if you do write your musical, then you have one, and the guy next to you probably doesn't. Yes. Yeah. You talked about your memorabilia. You have this great respect for so many uh, amazing women in your life that you even wrote letters for them and, yes, yes. and you corrected their treasures. But this private museum that you had was something that you lost when you hit your bottom. What I really lost in the first round, and, and, and I lost everything in 1990, I lost a letter from Birgit Nielsen and a signed photo, which was that was just unbearable to me. And I lost a signed letter from Leonard Bernstein. Of course, I lost all my posters and all that sort of thing. But what I found was that there was a place that had all of these antique posters. And when I got well, I was able to buy them all again. And Birgit Nielsen was still alive, so I was able to write to her and get something from her. And people helped me get some memorabilia of Leonard Bernstein. So basically, I, I was able to reconstruct everything. And so many of the plays and pieces of music that I lost, people would, would contact me years later and say, oh, I have this, oh, I have that, oh, would you be interested in this? And piece by piece, I got almost everything back. See, that's amazing, and that one of the gifts of sobriety, but also I think it's a gift of people really treasuring you and showing that you're a good person and a good man. That's great. I think people put a, a bad face on when it talks about addiction and drug addiction. You're proof that good people can be addicted just as bad as criminals. Well, it's I know of one producer who had me banned from a project probably 30 years after the event. And I thought, well, of course that would happen. That's absolutely the right to hold it in that way. I don't think it's good for him. And it doesn't make me any different because if I don't do this project, and I expect people to take what happened to me and what I did any way they want to take it. That's their right. Some people behaved like absolute angels. And, but of course, that's not going to be everyone. But that's fine. If you want to go that far outside the bounds of normal behavior, you have to expect everyone to take it in whatever way they're going to take it. No, I agree. I was very lucky the support I got because people didn't really know that I had a problem. They just knew I drank a lot. And it was really funny. I was hungover a lot. And the next thing they know, like, I was not drinking. I wasn't, I was not being social. And uh, people started putting it together. But I was, in, <laughs> yeah, I was in the dressing room of Spam a lot my first year. And those men saved my life because they all knew what was going on. And, <laughs> and you know what I mean? They, because we drank a lot. 
lot in that dressing room, but I would be the instigator oftentimes. So there's something Is about the, the original Broadway company. Yes. Oh, there were so many wonderful people in that company. My goodness. Oh, my God. It was brilliant. I remember we had a big boys' night out, which was all the men in the company. And I had, like, maybe two months. And we were at this fancy restaurant, and David Hyde Pierce was paying. And everyone was had their drink, and they were going to make a toast. And the waiter was like, oh, give this guy some drink. And I was like, yeah, I'm not drinking. All of a sudden, it was silence, because everyone was like, Brad's not, <laughs> Brad's not drinking. And David Hyde Pierce was like... Good for you, Brad. We all have to do things that are difficult sometimes. And he changed the subject and gave the toast. And it's just so amazing that when you talk about angels on earth. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone who knows him, I've I've met him, but I don't don't know him. But all the people who know him just say he's an, an angel. Yeah, just an angel. One of these incredible women that we're talking about in your life was Anne Margaret. Oh my gosh, I just talked to her day before yesterday. You did? We hadn't spoken in a long time. You know, it's been a long time since we worked together. It's more than 20 years, and she was always so gracious. And I thought, well, you know, it's a long time. Maybe she doesn't want to talk anymore. Yeah. But given what's going on in the world, I thought, I've got to check in with her. And I did. And she was so delightful and so gracious as she always was. But a marvelous, marvelous woman. Oh, yeah, because you did the Best of Whorehouse tour. Yes, yes. Which was her very first on-stage musical. Her very first. Really? Yep. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Scotty Salmon, my high school chorus teacher, was on stage with her in Vegas when she fell. She said it was the most horrifying thing he ever witnessed. And then by absolute accident, I was there in Vegas when she made her comeback from that, and I was in the front row and could have had no idea that I was going to end up spending a year and a half with her. Oh, and you created a dance break where you didn't you fall in the splits or something? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I did a, the first national of Very Good Eddie. I played Monsieur de Rougemont who was the lead dancer, and I did the split twice in that show. So every day on the road, I did the splits twice, and four times on that May Day. So it got into my body, and I was able to recreate it for years afterwards, when I was way past the age when people would have imagined I would be doing the splits. So when we were looking for an end to the number, the original had been a paddle wheel, and I said to Tommy Walsh, Surely we can do better than a paddle wheel. <laughs> and he goes, well, what do you think? And I said, what do you think about the split? And he goes, can you? <laughs> and he was in. That is great. I mean, I have a long career as a dancer, and I don't think I could do the splits right now. And <laughs> I was 50 at the time, so it was pretty surprising. And I was also quite heavy, which made it enormously funny. So you also can dance. See, there's you can do everything. <laughs> it's so funny. Very good, Eddie. Was choreography by Dan Soretta. He was a very complex choreographer. And the dance break was so unbelievably difficult. I was in my 20s. And I just thought I could do anything. So I just learned this impossible dance. But it also had an encore. And every night, I would have to cry out, encore! And we would do it again. And I never got used to it. It was just unbelievably difficult. Well, it paid off. You never know what what you're going to do in your youth. It's going to come in handy in your 50s. So, Kathy Lee Gifford came into your life and she offered you a role in a musical she wrote. You had this quote in your book that I thought was perfect. You said, I'm going to play this part in New York City if I have to pull the sun out of the sky to do it. (laughs) It's so funny. I'm at her house doing a David Friedman show. He was trying to raise money, so we were doing a reading at her house for some of her rich friends. And she pulled me aside and she goes, come with me. Come to my bedroom. I want to show you something. <laughs> and I immediately started laughing. She takes me up there and she's got this script and she hands it to me and says, I want you to be my Armand. Well, Armand was this homeless man living under a bridge in Paris. And I looked at it and I thought, well, who else is going to play this but me? <laughs> This has got to be done in New York. And of course, I did get to do it in New York. Oh, and that's amazing. I love that there's so many obstacles that are put in your way and you don't see them as obstacles. You just see them as 
challenges that you can overcome? It's funny. I never questioned. I didn't ever expect things to be easy. When you start off life the way I did, you don't expect things to be easy or to be handed to you. I always thought I was going to have to earn everything and create everything. And I think that's basically how everyone thinks who gets things done. And I love that. And it was done, was it done at the Zipper Theater? Yes, it was. Oh, what a wonderful theater that was. Oh my gosh, what a terrible loss to the community that was when that went down. I think they put a clothing store in there. Just tragic. It was such a wonderful space. Oh, how much has New York changed since you've been there? Oh, it's just unimaginable. I mean, when I first came here in the 60s, the first day I got here, I checked into the Y, and I went directly to the Palace Theater and saw Gwen Burden and Sweet Charity the first day. In those days, you could walk up Broadway, and it was so pleasant and so wonderful, and it was not filled with tourists, and you could swing your arms and walk and not be bumping into people. And I just wanted to be in a theater every moment of every day. And now, going to Midtown in Manhattan is like a punishment. It's like, who would want to be there? It's so awful. Yeah, no, I agree. I know it's the place I always wanted to dream of being, and I used to love it, being in there, and now yep. it's crazy. I went from Mary Poppins to Anything Goes. Mary Poppins was on one side of Times Square, and Anything Goes was on the other. So for two years, I was having to go to Times Square every day. I'd be fighting my way through hordes of tourists, and I'd be thinking, this is the dream, guy. This is the dream. This <laughs> What are you supposed to do now? Yeah, it is yeah. amazing. Something that's going on right now with my life. I think I always thought about getting to Broadway, and I never thought of, like, what to do after that. Because <laughs> now that I've accomplished so much, and now I'm of a man of a certain age, I was like, wait a minute, what's next? Yes, of course I want to do another Broadway show, but you don't bounce from them as easy as you do when you're younger. It's a very different world. Unfortunately, I'm in this wonderful position where... With the success of, of Georgie, my show about George Rose, I, that was kind of the cherry on top of a great big cake. And I just felt like anything that happens after this is just extraneous. I've really done virtually all the things I wanted to do. I have two pensions. I have an enormous body of work behind me. And I don't have to do anything or prove anything at this point, which is an extraordinary place to be. Oh, it's a wonderful place to be. Right now, I'm writing a children's musical with a man I met on a plane by accident eight years ago, and he wrote to me and asked me if I knew someone who might write for his children's musical, and I thought, oh, I can't leave my house. I'll do it. So I'm doing that right now. I find it enormously enjoyable. I love composing. It's not a question of where I think this musical is going to be done or when. I just love doing it. I love composing, the act of composing. I mean, again, your inspiration. Most people are like freaked out. They don't know what to do during a quarantine and a crisis. And you're like, I'm going to write a children's musical. <laughs> <laughs> Just because this guy asked me. Yeah. 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 And well, tell me about Georgie and that <laughs> show. Well, you know, at some time in the early 70s, I think it was 1974, I did a national tour of the student print and uh, the king of operetta was producing it, Raymond Engel, and directing it. And I was told that it was going to be starring the great George Rose, but I didn't know who he was. And I ended up on the road with him and discovered that he was one of the greatest comedians that had ever set foot on a stage. And there I was touring the country with him as, and I was a very young man and he was in his 50s. And I just didn't have the most unbelievable stories about the old days and the Royal Shakespeare Company and Olivier and Gilbert and Richardson. And it was so intoxicating to me and we remained friends for many years until I visited him in the Dominican Republic where he was murdered. So I had all this information about his amazing wife and his death because I met the people who killed him. And at one point, when he was at his, the height of his fame, George had come to me to coach vocally because he wanted to rework his voice. So our lives had been very intertwined for 20 years. And after all these years passed, since his murder, I finally thought, so I have all this information, I could actually write about this now that I had the maturity to do it. That was another case where I thought, I'm going to get this done in New York or else, which is exactly what it takes to get something to do. 
in New York. That was another quote that you wrote that I thought was brilliant. You said, getting a show mounted in New York City is as difficult as getting sober. <laughs> that is true. That oh. is, and that's unlikely. It's so unlikely that that would ever happen. And little did I know that I would win the drama desk. I mean, that was just the most thrilling night. And it was almost 30 years to the day since I was first nominated for Shylock, which I also wrote. Just this extraordinary moment of completion. Oh, it's so, so wonderful. And was that also at the York? Shylock was at the York, and Georgie was at the at Davenport. Oh, okay. That theater expired also. It's just so sad. Huh? I mean, it's going to be sad and curious what theaters and what shows are, are going to survive this quarantine and this epidemic. Indeed. I mean, I just feel so for all my compatriots, because there I am in my progression, where I am in my life, you know, I'm collecting my pensions. I don't have to go work now. I'm just so lucky, so fortunate, so protected. Most of my friends are not. Yeah. So it's just, it's heart-wrenching. Mm. So you've had this crazy, amazing life and support and friends that you were able to share with, but you became estranged from your family, and that's definitely their loss. Has that been difficult? Well, you know, because my family, were, they were all fundamentalist Christians, and I was not. So there was really no way. You can't bring an evangelical along with you. It's literally not possible. And I realized very early on that I was either going to have to let them go or I was going to die with them. Of course, it's a difficult to start your life without a support system, but it's much more difficult if you try to bring along with you a support system that is not functioning. I didn't know that at the time. All I knew was I couldn't take them with me. So for all of these amazing events that happened, there was never a family or a support system coming to see me in any of these things. That's just the way it was. Just accept life the way it is. It's very, very true. And it didn't hold you back one bit. Well, you know, I believe that my drug addiction and a lot of my neuroses were a direct result of that because just because you drop your family doesn't mean you drop all of the baggage that was created in you as a child. That all has to be sorted through as an adult. No, it's very true. I'm still sorting through some of my stuff. Well, so am I, and I'm 71. You've got a ways to go. Yes, <laughs> it's a never-ending never process. Indeed it is. <laughs> yes. Well, of your incredible career, what would you say is one of the two things that are your biggest highlights, the things that you're so proud of? I'm very proud of Georgie, of course. That was the closest I ever came to standing on a stage and saying exactly who I was. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of Shylock because that was such an unprecedented event getting that produced in New York. And I'm very proud of Sunset Boulevard because it was simply an extraordinary experience. And you can see me singing The Greatest Star of All on YouTube. The quality of the recording is not very good. But there's a moment in it when Joe Gillis says to me, oh, she's quite a character, isn't she? And I turn and give him this death look. I am so thrilled that that is captured on film for people. It's one of the favorite moments of my career, and unlike all the others, it is captured on film. Yes. Well, I love that besides Sunset, the other moments you picked are things that you created for yourself. And I think that so many actors sit around waiting for the phone to ring or waiting for an email to come in the mail. And we can't do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not expressing yourself. I, I, I wouldn't have chosen to do it this way. But when what you want to say is not being written by someone else and you realize you have the option to possibly say it yourself, that is such an important moment in your life to seize that moment. Now's the time to do it. We all have the time. Yes, we do. <laughs> well, if I were to end this episode with a song up from your life or one of your songs that would play out the credits, what would it be? I think Out Here in the Woods from Casa County. It, it may be my favorite song that I've ever written. Oh, well, I will definitely play that. Well, thank you so much for this, and I so appreciate it. I'm going to make the sound sound as good as possible, but what we can do when we're being artists and we're stuck inside. Well, I so appreciate that. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Wonderful speaking with you as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, Brad. Bye-bye. Out here in the woods When I am all alone With just my load of goods 
what happiness I've known. They say that I am lazy, but I love this world God made. And a man would be most crazy not to lie here in his shade. And since crazy I am not, I'll just lie here on this spot, underneath the mountain smile, stretching out a thousand mile and sing. A while Sycamore Nettles on the ground Willow chores Murmur not a sound While the laurels White with bloom Join the pine and chestnut Swaying to my tune that I could lie right here until I gladly die were it not that I love living and I love that Nelly Bly so I guess I'd best get on with my living and my song but my heart could break in two every time I tell this view 